Welcome to another episode of Learn with Bestern, where we discuss the latest trends in leadership development, self-development, as well as well-being. There's so much information out there. We want to make sure we bring in the latest insights and research based on neuroscience and behavior change to give you the tools that you need to make a change in your personal and professional lives. Join us on a journey to learn more. We hope you enjoy this episode and don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with others that might find it helpful. We are living interesting times. My question is, in 10, 20 years, will we still call the COVID, COVID times or will, it, will we call it the great reflection times? Uh, at the end of last year, Gardner conducted a survey about what has changed in the mindset of people because of the pandemic. 65% value more other things than work. There is 56% who wants to contribute more to society. 52% question the purpose of their work. And the thing is that this search for purpose at work is in the back of the minds of the majority of people. And finding alternatives is becoming critical, essential for us. Now, the search for meaning through spirituality is something that is sometimes misunderstood, in particular when we think about Buddhism we think about religion or we think about meditation and yoga mats. But, but, but it's more than that. In reality, what do I know? For that, I have invited someone, Ryan Estes, that has made the conscious choice to leave these principles in his own life and in his own company. Now, before that, let me introduce a little bit about Ryan. Ryan Estes is the founder of Kitcaster and Wildcast, He's a marketeer and tech founder. He's disrupting the podcast industry. Wow, there is a little bit of story with this story with connection, right? But more than that, his vision on how to lead companies that are purpose-driven is what makes him the appropriate guest for our episode today on building a business based on his spiritual principles. Ryan, thank you very much for making the time to be with me. And I wanted to start just with one simple question. So how did it all started with your interest? By the way, I know a lot that in the USA, a lot of people has con converted or is following the principles of Buddhism. I have heard that David Bowie was Buddhist, Steve Jobs, uh, even Adam Yauch, one of my favorite, uh, from one of my favorite groups, Beastie Boys, back in the days. Um, <laughs> So, and I wanted to, to, to understand, did it happen for you in the same way? Or was it a trend or how did you discover Buddhism? Ivan, thank you so much. I'm so excited to speak with you, particularly about this subject. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm happy to be here. So yeah, you know, I think Buddhism does, at least in the States, have a certain amount of cultural cachet, particularly in the 90s. You know, uh, you mentioned Adam Yao with the Beastie Boys was pretty instrumental with the free Tibet movement back then oh, doing yeah. big concerts and things like that. Um, so definitely got your attention of like, kind of, Hey, what's going on with these guys in these cool orange robes. Um, and, and that's really where it started with me is within high school. You know, I, I think I was attracted most to kind of uh, the aesthetic 
particularly like kind of the feudal Japan aesthetic with the rice paper walls and the sandals and the samurais. It's just gorgeous. You know, it was like a, it had a gravitational pull to me. So I, I kind of sought out, you know, what, it, what is the, the components of this? Um, seeing Buddhas with their, you know, stoic yet somewhat smiling faces, you know, calmly sitting in that lotus position in statues all over the world throughout antiquity. It's like, what's going on here? What is enlightenment? What are, what are these big ideas? So that really started it in, uh, you know, in high school, I picked up a copy of the Tao Te Ching from some cool used bookstore and, you know, opened it and started reading, you know, uh, it was immediately taken by the first verse, which is, you know, the way that can be spoken is not the true way, which is absolutely hilarious considering it's a book. So it's like if I was to intro this conversation by saying anything I say right now is going to make no sense. So now let's have a conversation for an hour. <laughs> so kind of the opacity of that, particularly the Tao Te Ching, really caught my interest in all of the um, kind of polarities and the opposites and, and the unity of it. Uh, was really interesting to me. So, you know, I kind of began uh, a meditation practice, which for many years just involved me sitting there being like, is or, or am I doing this right? You know, which also then started to lead to like practicing yoga. Um, yoga is kind of ubiquitous now, but you know, 1994, 1995, maybe you had a couple of places, you know, there was a couple of gals, you knew that got juice at Whole Foods and they did yoga. So that was also had a certain gravity to it. <laughs> <laughs> so that was really my, my start in um, kind of the, the Buddhist teachings, um, Taoism obviously predating Buddhist, but kind of like that whole Eastern, Eastern esoteric kind of tradition. Wow, that was quite early, in fact, because usually this is a time where we think about partying, music, girls, and you were thinking about principles of life. Wow. So you should be the, the odd one within your, your group, or was it like a trend in the around you oh i was definitely thinking about music and girls don't don't worry about that <laughs> <laughs> playing guitar i mean come on now um yeah no I, i don't think it was a trend per se i mean i had some friends that were interested um you know and a lot of that would, would probably be like those late nights sitting around the keg at the keg party and having philosophical discussions i absolutely live for that and and have been fortunate enough to somehow make my living through that essentially podcasting is just a big keg party Ivan don't you know yeah um so yeah you know it, it not necessarily a trend but also I've always been kind of uh drawn to all religious uh, all religions all kind of wisdom traditions you know through I was kind of raised a Protestant um you know started meditating I was introduced to Lakota Uh, community where I did a lot of ceremonies with Lakotas here in Colorado um, and then you know stint as atheist and you know I've kind of gone through a lot of different modalities but I think really the the, the thread is like kind of a, a seeker you know I'm looking for truth and wisdom um, and I think early on you kind of get stuck into these silos perhaps you're like hey which is the which is which ideas are going to win And I think as that's kind of evolved over time, I've really learned how to like be interested and enthusiastic about all of them. So when we're having a conversation about Buddhism, I like to make some distinctions about American Buddhism because certainly the culture is very um, 
prevalent in all Buddhist traditions. You know, there's Buddhism all over the world and they all have different cultural traditions. So in America, the Buddhist tradition is very young. And so we're trying to grapple with what is Americans contribution to Buddhism? What can we offer the community as a whole? And also how are we gonna incorporate some of these principles into our practice? Hmm. You're right. Now that I think back, <laughs> um, I, I have heard about Westerners converting to Buddhism uh, mainly in the early 20s. There was uh, people like writers like Hermann Hesse. I think he was German or Austrian, one of those. So uh, who converted to Buddhism. But, and there was a, a other writers who were following. But in the USA, I think it came quite after the, after the 50s that there was an integration into this uh, culture of hippies. <laughs> Let's call it like uh, like that. Uh, th there was an integration of these spiritual principles in the, in this uh, ideology. Now, I wanted to ask you: for people who aren't aware of Buddhist principles, what does it mean to live and breathe these principles in your day to day life? You know, I can speak about what it means for me. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, because Buddhism is notorious for their lists. You know, they've got lists of the principles that you should live by and the principles have lists and that kind of structure and organization also, I, I really am fond of being a systems and process guy. I'm like, wow, look at all these like well-organized bullet points. <laughs> um, and Buddhism is a lot of different things for a lot of different people. You know, statistically, I think Buddhists worldwide, like 95% of them don't have any contemplative meditation practice at all. It's really more of a religious practice, you know, um, it, it, to that point, like you said, somebody were, uh, converted into Buddhism, which is it, which from my perspective is kind of interesting because there's really no conversion. You know, Buddhism has a way of soaking into a culture or into different religious traditions. There's there's no odds. You know, it's not like I was once this now I'm Buddhist. It's like no weather. Buddhism kind of soaks into the thing that you already are. Um, That's right. So, <laughs> and, and also to your point too, about um, the, the expansion of Buddhism into America, it's also important to note, as you pointed out, that it really started later fifties and sixties. And a, a lot of that was, you know, from hippies, hippies that I want to be careful with my words, were having experiences on substances um, that opened up, you know, chambers of consciousness in their mind, potentialities, let's say, right. that that can be kind of destabilizing. And so a lot of them went to India, you know, and found gurus or teachers. Um, and then they returned to the US with with these teachings. And that's kind of the, the foundation of our core. So when we're talking about girls and rock and roll and all that stuff, boy, that's a major part of the inception of Buddhism in this country. And now we're also seeing kind of like the, the the fallout from that because as we also know you know drug sex and rock and roll has a certain cost and expense and most certainly those folks back then particularly in Colorado um, had some damage that was done that's that's I think the communities are in the part process of healing right now um, remind me the, the first part of your questions I went off on a tangent there the, the core of the question was about what do you do in the day-to-day -day life that can be considered that you're following Buddhist principles Yes, absolutely. So Buddhist principles. Um, in my practice, and this is kind of taking the lead from the Dalai Lama, 
where the Dalai Lama said, you know, if you're reading our scriptures and there's a section where it said that the Buddha walked and flowers bloomed from his footprints, he's like, take that with a grain of salt. That's poetry. We understand with physics and science that like actually that can't happen, um, which is really refreshing. So that's to say that um, in Buddhism, there's a very small lift when you're talking about things to believe. And, and in fact, particularly with Zen Buddhism, there's nothing to believe. There's, there's, you don't need a doctrine that can be helpful. You don't need a teacher, it can be helpful, but there's nothing to believe here. Rather, Buddhism is something that you do. So the principles um, of Buddhism, I see as kind of a technology and uh, basically a tool that I can use to emphasize the, the things that are important to me. So when I look at my life, you know, um, I have certain ambitions, you know, I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good father. I want to be a good friend. I want to be good at business and fair in my dealings. I want um, to have admiration and respect from the people that I work with and my colleagues, you know, and, and how do I get to that point? That's the destination. You know, I want to cultivate kindness. I want to cultivate a sense of peace and calm. So these are things that you believe in, rather something that you actually do. You know, so there's different techniques as far as like contemplative, contemplative techniques that will evoke different consciousness states and different states of being. So with the end goal being like, hey, I want to be the best person I can for the people that I love and for the people that um, have expectations on me. What are the practices um, that will lead me to that? And I'm happy to talk about those practices if you'd like. That would be good. Be before that, I when you were talking, I was thinking that. I mean, during the last 10 years, you are certainly aware that, that there has been a lot of writing about behavioral science, neuroscience, in order to understand how the brain processes certain things, in fact, that you have mentioned. For, for instance, kindness, the feeling of trust. What does it produce as molecules inside of our, uh, uh, of our brain? Or, well, you didn't mention it, but I mean, I know about Buddhism is the, the principle of enlightenment that can be associated to self-awareness. So these are principles that are in need, in fact, in, in our current society. Uh, and of course, it is very difficult for organizations, like in the workplace, to implement because they don't know how. They think that it's still the, the usual way of training people. Is, it needs to be like a, in a training class, you get a couple of slides, two hours or one day of, of, of slides, and then you, you can practice. And in fact, the practice of self-awareness, the practice practice of kindness, uh, is something that takes time, and is you need to to start practicing. In fact, you need to do it in a recurrent manner, a little bit like when you go to the gym to take care of your uh, of your body. So it's it's very very difficult, but it's almost like principles that are that were created one thousand five hundred years ago, or even more. I don't remember exactly. Um, are coming back because of science because science is making it relevant for the way we think today we are thinking about our own own psychology we are thinking about how the brain how we can find purpose in life and how the brain reacts when you don't feel either belonging or you feel alone and well covid has accelerated a little bit the movement because finally people has opened up towards the distress that we are living in in our day-to-day life and the, all the distractions that we're having that in our brain is paying at all and this is reflected with burnout anxiety and and so on um 
I wanted to get back to, to relate it more. Like, I want to talk to you a little bit like a businessman. What have you observed that businesses are missing to have employees that are happy to go to work? Yeah, you know, I can actually tie this into kind of what you were talking about, I think. You know, you mentioned like, hey, if you, you, you work out your body, you can expect results, you know? Mm -hmm. So like, you can't get big biceps unless you're doing the curls, you know? And they found the same thing with brain science as far as like um, uh, creating new neural pathways. So what they say is altered states create altered traits. So if the goal is like, I want peace and calm, <laughs> <laughs> you take it the same way that you would like, I want big biceps. So you create um, practice around cultivating peace and calm. And what it does is it actually rewires the brain into new pathways. And what we know, just like getting big biceps is the more you do that, the more solidified those new pathways get. So the more opportunities you have to actually um, experience those outcomes that you want, you know, again, this is a great, uh, response to the enthusiasm of Buddhism in the 50s and 60s that, you know, turned to science. And, and they were able to speak to us in kind of our language. I think this is also really important to America's contribution to Buddhism, because culturally, I can't help the feeling of being kind of feeling like an outsider. You know, you're reading uh, you know, scripts from India, you're reading stuff from Tibet, and like the names alone, it's like, I don't even try and pronounce them in my head. I'm like, boy, that's so many vowels and consonants, beautiful, but it's just so outside of my scope. It's not my language, you know? I mean, I was, I, you know, went to school and was educated. I'm a scientific materialist at heart. You know, a lot of these principles, energy and think chakras and things like that, don't, doesn't land in the way of someone's like, no, I can see clear uh, changes and in indications from your endocrine system as based by these experiments, A, B, and C. That's my cultural language. So I think you're totally correct that what we're seeing is that these spiritual principles um, are actually full of academic rigor. And why wouldn't they be? They're 2,500 years old, maybe 5,000 years old. Mm -hmm. Generations and generations of people have been pouring over these. So there's no reason that there isn't the same kind of academic rigor over generations. Rather, it's just not in the same language that we're accustomed to using. So now we're starting to see the bridge of like, oh, when they talk about this, this is what it means to us. And it kind of comes together. So things in the mind now are things in the brain, you know, because the brain is the gray matter with wrinkles in it. You can you can poke it and stuff the mind. Who knows what that is? So I think that there is an important distinction. So in corporate culture, let's say traditionally. Um, and let's just speak stereotypically, because if I think corporate culture, I'm thinking of like Gordon Gecko in the 80s, you know, <laughs> the high powered capitalist psychopaths. I know? watched the movie again, like two weeks ago. Nice. It's great. Greed, for lack of a better word, is good. They meant that to be like abhorrent and everybody took it as like some gospel truth. <laughs> oh, yeah. But it's the same way, you know, um, every tradition speaks on the merits of virtue and they talk about virtue being of its own merit. It's like, hey, here's some guideposts from a thousand generations that have gone before. You might want to consider doing this um, in the same way they look at vice and say like, hey, here's some dangerous things about being a human. We're all hard hardwired in a uh, certain way to have lust, greed, envy, 
jealousy, hatred, violence, all these things are in us, you know, and we're kind of taught from every wisdom tradition that like, you should be wary of that. You should steer clear of that, you know, and it's for the same reason, you know, altered states uh, create altered traits. So I think the problem is that the, the reward system, at least in co corporate culture, kind of traditionally is all geared towards selfishness and greed. <laughs> Unfortunately, there's, there's not a large voice at the table. Yeah. <laughs> there's not a large voice at the table for compassion and kindness, largely because these people are legally bound to uh, uh, positively inf uh, influencing their stakeholders. Um, share so it's like it's not it's not about like goodness it's not about tenderness and kindness rather you're constantly constantly reinforced for some selfish kind of reasons um, so as that happens and uh, I I'm going to mention this although it's something I heard in passing on a podcast that in the same way that they've studied Buddhists brains like monks that have 10,000 hours of meditation practice like you mentioned and you can see some different traits um Billionaires have a, a, sim, a similar uh, characteristic only on the opposite spectrum that like when showed images of people like suffering, like it, nothing lights up in their compassion side of their brain. Like it's kind of like blocked off so that they've actually developed maybe a superhuman capability to not be empathetic to people that are suffering. Um, so it, is that a product of uh, corporate culture or are they just naturally talented in some horrific way? <laughs> I don't know, um, but interesting to note at least. Hmm. Ryan, so uh, now I want to catch up with what you mentioned a couple of minutes ago. It is about the practice. <clears throat> so you have highlighted the fact that the uh, the creation of of new pathways in our in our brain uh, makes it solidifies it and creates like makes it more natural. In fact. So whatever practice that we have, even if it is a breathing exercises or a meditation as such, um, because of our uh, our brain, we, we, we can do it in a natural way to, um, even if we do it not like people who are really into, uh, into the expertise of meditation, but even if we have, we can do it a couple of minutes every, every day, it becomes a routine and you are capable of, I don't know, detecting a little bit more your emotions being able to control to manage the, the what goes out outside and also the sense of not caring about things that are at the end not that important um so i'm a good believer of that you don't have to start with trying with one hour of meditation by the way i have good a lot of problems of reaching one hour of meditation but i am quite constant on my path to improve it like i do it every single day but it, I don't do it that long. <clears throat> that has allowed me, in fact, to improve a lot of anxieties that I, I have personally. Um, now, what are the regular practices that for the people who wants to start uh, using the principles of, uh, of spirituality or, or, or Buddhism to start that they can start easily? People want to have something tangible, but not difficult. If you say like, one or two hours every single day of meditation to start is going to be tough for most of us. Oh man, two hours of meditation is hard for everybody. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, you know, um, it's interesting. Meditation, um, 
talk about it in two ways. I'm happy to talk about it in spiritual terms, but also for your audience that's probably not inclined to like spiritual terminology, meditation, what does that mean? Enlightenment, what does that mean? What are all these lofty things? Um, really, if you just call it non-sleep, deep rest, then you can understand pretty easily, like this could be positive for me. Mm. Um, from a spiritual angle, you got to be careful of the trap, which is to say, like, I'm doing this for some self-improvement. That's, that's a major hole you can fall into. If you don't take a spiritual component to it at all, you're just like, no, this is non-sleep, deep rest. It's, it's so productive and so good for you. And, and the probably a, a really good technique for people to start with this it is just kind of like um, body scans is what they'll call a body scan. Mm -hmm. So what you can do is you just lay down and get comfortable. You know, that's it. And what I do is I start with the joints in my toes. And I just say, release. And as I say, release, I, I imagine the joints in my toes just fully relaxing. And then I go up to my ankles and I say, release. And I just let all the joints in my ankles fully re relax. And then the knees and then the hips and then the spine. And then you kind of go up and up and up and up. And just up and down, up and down. Um, what's common is that you'll probably get to, if you're lucky, your knees. And now you're starting to think about your grocery list. You know, and everything will come in, which is okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But then you can just say like, you know what, right now I'm just doing non-sleep deep rest. I'm really fully relaxing. So what it does is it'll show you pretty quickly like, wow, you know, I'm holding a little bit of tension in my right calf. And so you can kind of hold your attention on it and relax. And you'll kind of see, you know, your feet relax a little bit or your knees or something like that. So that's the example of something that's not too heady. You know, a lot of times, you know, people go straight to like Vipassana and mindfulness meditations of observing your thoughts. And that can be really challenging. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a hard practice for actually for everybody. Um, but rather, if you give your brain a task, you know, we're much better, especially Americans, task oriented. I'm here to relax as best as I possibly <laughs> can, <laughs> you know, and do that, you know, for as long as you can. You know, if it's five or 10 minutes, great. You know, I like to do 20 minute sessions. That seems to be like kind of a good rhythm for me for whatever practice I'm doing, generally speaking. Um, so that's that's a really good one. You know, people use mantra and prayer in a similar way um, as far as just speaking to like keeping your brain occupied um, while you're doing some of these postures or, or deep rest positions. Mm. So from from a science perspective, what, what we are doing, in fact, <clears throat> to train our brain to focus in some parts of our body, right? It, uh, it is, I mean, it's not per se that there is going to be some spiritual thing that is going to come to your toe to relax it. It's your brain controlling, but you are paying attention, focusing on one single thing in order to detect emotions. I mean, yes, it sounds a little bit weird, emotions from your toe, uh, it's a, in fact, Every sense that we have comes from, from our brain. So it is not exactly our toe who feels. It's our brain who tells us there is pressure and then I need to feel something. So we are, in fact, training our, our brain. And as you say, we, we, it's not about doing it for a long time. It's certain things like the, the, uh, the practice that you have mentioned. It, it can be done in, starting with five minutes. Uh, and it's something that is quite useful 
especially if you do it like early in the morning, going to, I don't know, to work or to start, uh, start the day, because we have a lot of interaction. Even when we are working from home, we have all the interactions of our family and God knows how difficult emotionally it is to be with our family. Right, Ryan? <laughs> Uh, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, yeah, okay. You're the only one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, to that point, you know, um, consciously calming down and relaxing is something you can practice and something you get good at. I mean, everybody is stressed. Everybody has anxiety. Everybody goes through periods of depression. We live in an incredibly complex time where things are thrown at us that are like, our, our, our brain can't handle it, you know? And so what happens is we have involuntary physical reactions. Probably the, the most notorious one is you'll start to like creep your shoulders up a little bit. Like when you're typing or something, you start to like scrunch up and yeah. it's your body naturally protecting your neck because your neck is your most vulnerable place. So like if you're in danger, you'll start to scrunch up, you know? And if you don't notice, you might be typing like this all day, but if you're doing kind of a body scan, you're like, wow, look at my shoulders are actually really tense. And I, I'm not intending to do that. So you can relax it intentionally. You can sit up straight. You can take a deep breath, you know, uh, particularly around the breath. If you're breathing out longer than you're breathing in, you're telling your brain that you're safe, you know? So there's these tips you can have where you're like, God, I'm so stressed out. I just want to get rid of the stress. It's like, well, actually do it. Just stop being stressed out which is going to be releasing the tension as much as you can from your body you know breathe out longer than you're breathing in maybe you breathe out to the count of seven you breathe into the count of five and it tells your brain that you're safe so the external world and your subconscious mind might be constantly telling you you're you should be afraid um when really you're just in your kitchen eating breakfast watching the news <laughs> You remind your body that like, I know the TV is saying some really scary things right now, but you're safe. You're eating breakfast in your home and you can relax. So uh, with the process of practicing that intentionally, let's say if you started and you started doing that two or three times a week, and then that became six times a week, and then it became once a day, and then it becomes three times a day, seven times a day. And then maybe you're at the point where like, you're kind of checking in all the time. Where am I stiff? Where am I holding tension? Where am I holding stress? How do I relax that out? Um, it, it's just good as far as like your general mental well-being. And really, there's no risk associated with it. You know, it's like exactly. just consciously relaxing is never going to hurt you. <laughs> and, and, and the crazy thing is that even when you are not in the posture to relax, like touching your toes or even having some breathing exercises, it can come once you practice it in a regular basis, it comes naturally. It, you know how to relax. Suddenly you are having like a stressful moment, like me when I'm presenting in front of people. I mean, no matter how many years I have been presenting in front of people, I'm still stressed. So that practice comes back naturally. I can focus a little bit more on my breathing, feeling a little bit of my, of my body. And I don't have to be to look like uh, I'm I'm doing some meditation or, or yoga. I can do it at, at any time. The, totally. So from what we are saying is that from relaxation, it can go to a little bit detecting, a little bit getting to know a little some of your emotions. And it, it can be even expanded that recognizing, feeling people's emotions without even thinking about it. Like 
naturally recognizing certain body movements, the type of language that you that you are using uh, or they are using in order to react ap appropriately. So it's not only about you, it can go into this interaction mode. That's quite uh, powerful, especially in, uh, in the business world. Coming back to the business world, Ryan. <clears throat> so what we know is that businesses are made to generate revenues for shareholders and products that consumers want or love. So what is the benefit to embed spiritual principles in this business? You can do that without... <laughs> <laughs> um, the benefits. Well, um, this, this is something I wrestle with, you know? Because is it is it good on its own virtue? Are the merits worth it on its own self? Is it is it is being trustworthy, um, being honest, um, doing the right thing? Is that it, it, especially within kind of like our capitalistic framework? Is that good for business? <laughs> I don't know. You know, I think it's good for someone's personally. You know. Oh, yeah. um, or even better than that, it doesn't hurt. Um, you know, I, 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 there was a story recently about the CFO for Bed Bath and Beyond um, threw himself out of an 18 story window, you know, a couple of days ago, you know, and like, I just, I, I really, it really kind of got me. It's like, you know, that company has been on a, a downside and there was question, uh, questions about some of his like insider trading, maybe in a stock. Um, and all that noise inside of him to make him do that, you know, um, I think it's just kind of em emblematic of like, you know, what, at what cost is this good for business? <laughs> you know, um, And it, I, everybody asks himself that not everybody's talented with whatever non-empathetic gene, you know, most people do have empathy and most people um, if, if they're doing something that, that might be negatively affected, it, it, it horribly disfigures them from an emotional, spiritual level, you know? So while I'm kind of hesitant to talk about spiritual practice, the benefits of it, because truly, if you're going into it with benefits as being your, your desired outcomes, you're, you're gonna get, you're get, what you're gonna do is you're gonna get caught into some cult. There's gonna be some guy with a salt, salty uh, ponytail and a thumb ring that's gonna have a place for you on his compound. You know, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta be careful for that, you know? Um, but that's that being said, there are benefits. Um, but as opposed to the benefits, what's important to me as it as it translates to work in particular, is the idea that the benefits aren't important. The negative sides aren't important. What's important is that I show up and I can relax my body and I can be helpful and of use to to my colleagues, my stakeholders, everybody like that. So there's a great uh, great Zen monk named Dogen, who had just wonderful poetry. It's really cool to, to read, but he's really kind of famous for one scripture, which he said, you know, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. You know, there is no transformational thing that's going to save you. You know, if you're going to like spiritual practice because you're like, I need something to fix me. It, it nothing works. You're stuck with who you are. You can learn to sit with it. Um, how this translates to me over to business is I find myself that my happiness or lack of happiness is directly tied to my profit margins, you know, mm. and, and that's troubling because I don't want something external to like have its grips around my spirit, you know? So let's say, Hey, we're up 20% this month. 
awesome. I'm so excited. Chop wood, carry water. Next day, what's up? We're down 50%. Oh my God. Oh no. Next day, chop wood, carry water. The way I'm, I'm <laughs> carrying myself and conducting myself on a daily basis is going to be influenced by my profit margin, no doubt. But I'm going to wake up the next day and work the same way that I did the day before. Because my goal is to like make sure that I'm a calm, stable, helpful person as much as I possibly can be. I think you have you have really nailed the point because so it is not the, the way I, I ask the question is a little bit tricky and I did it in purpose because business people uh, correlates directly the an action to the impact. If I do mindfulness in my in, in the office, am I going to have more revenues? Of course not. But if if your people are trained to enjoy better what they do, they have meaning in life, they have uh, a little bit more of, of, of kindness, they are happier. And you say that happier. And, and it's, that happiness makes people more productive and more creative. And, and, yeah. and that's the thing. It's, it's not about having the the, 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 the ultimate, ultimate results. Is when they are productive and creative, you are going to have not a standard business that is continuously growing, you're going to have something that could be exponential because when creativity and productivity is what drives businesses to go 2x, 5x, 10x, or whatever. And that's especially, I mean, I have recognized that in, in the startup world because in the startup world, there is a lot of growth that, that can happen, can happen for some of the startups. Um, and I have noticed that when, there is this environment of belonging. People are happy. Even, I mean, they they don't mind about really the time that they're, they're spending as long as they're spending it with the good people, the people that they want to be, where people are treating themselves in, in a correct way, in kind with kindness, in, uh, in fact. And of course, companies can flourish can and people, individuals can also flourish. And that's, that's the good thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, to that point, you know, I haven't had a lot of good examples of what it means to be like a great manager that's empathetic and kind. I really haven't, but I've had a great example of the opposite. <laughs> Tyrannical psycho management, you know, um, which actually is super helpful as well, you know, because, you know, at, as you said, like, if you want to get the most out of your staff and really have them productive then they need to feel safe. They need to be, I mean, if they're happy, awesome, but at least if they're feeling safe and they feel supported that when things get choppy, they have a place to go to get help. You know, if they've, if you've got that, it gives them a position. It gives them an opportunity for something extraordinary to happen. You know, so from, from my seat, uh, managerially, it's, it's all about creating that opportunity, not only for our staff, but for clients, for vendors, for all those opportunities, for those uh, opportunities to happen. You know, so I can really check down a lot of times, <clears throat> pardon me, which is like, I'm not trying to be helpful. Really, what I'm trying to do is not make anything worse first. You know, I, I don't want to. And I, I know how this like shows up. It's because you have a boss who gives you that because I said so type rhetoric. You know, you're like, hey, hey, I, I was wondering why, why can't we work from home like all the time? Why is it only one or two days a week? And it's because I said so. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing, you know, we're like, well, wait, let's, if, if anything comes into my head because I'm irritated or whatever, I want to give some kind of, because I said so thing, I know I'm wrong hundred percent of the time. 
So I'll backtrack and then listen, you know, hey, what, what's really going on here? What's, a, what's the, a, the fundamental cause of this uh, conflict? Let's see if I can first not make it worse and then hopefully see if a solution presents itself. You made me think about something that is, I don't know if our brain is biased to recognize the bad examples, but suddenly I, I thought about how many people were bad bosses uh, and how many people were good bosses. And the ratio is 10 to two. <laughs> really, are we biased? Do we feel it more when it is bad, what, when we have bad bosses? I don't know, because I, I could only think out of my 18 years of corporate life, two bosses who were good people. I know, I know. It's most most bosses think they can be a jerk all week long, drop a box of donuts on your desk on Friday, and they're, now they're a good boss. It's like, dude, I'm gonna blow these donuts up on your chair. What are we doing here? <laughs> <laughs> so, getting back to the to the workplace. So, what we always hear that change, if we want to change, I don't know, the culture of a company to to make it a little bit more human uh more human change starts at the top what would be your message for a founder or a ceo to consider creating a business culture centering kindness mindfulness and purpose what could be the your, the message if you have the magic wand and you have the opportunity to say it face to face you know i would say study the office and just watch what Michael Scott is doing terribly wrong on that show. <laughs> <laughs> and don't repeat it. You know, you can see what happens when good intentions go terribly wrong. There's uh, <laughs> a lot of times uh, those late night ideas that pop into your head, probably not a good idea. You know, um, I, I think the first step is to really become sensitive to it. Like, really, if that's really something you wanted, I want to change the culture. You realize right in the beginning, like how almost impossible this is going to be to do, how long this is really going to take, how much of a sacrifice this is really going to be. And like, are you fit for that? Are you fit for the kind of cultural change that needs to happen inside of you so that it can emanate to everybody else? You know, particularly if you're like kind of un raveling perhaps some more toxic type culture um it's gonna take a long time people get traumatized by that stuff they need to they need to let it out um it also all this has to happen in kind of a a, a guise of professionalism which is also a little bit i wouldn't say anti-human but it it's kind of stifling right it's like it's like hey we want openness and communication but boy we don't want to go don't go too crazy now like we're we're working with like very delicate balance. So, you know, <laughs> I'm not even joking with the office. I think having clear examples of good intentions gone wrong is, is really something helpful to balance yourself against. Ryan, again, you made me think about, I have met a guy in my corporate career that was 80% there in terms of uh, Michael Scott, having exactly the same behaviors, really. I. I I cannot lie. I'm still thinking about this guy. He's still working in that company, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, me too. I've watched that show. And I'm like, boy, it cuts a little close to home sometimes. Ouch. <laughs> um, what do you think it could be? I mean, 
you mentioned, in fact, that Buddhism have different type of, of interpretations that can be depending on the culture where you grew up. You told me about the American Buddhism. There is the Japanese Buddhism, the Indian one. And, and there is this micro, I don't know, entities that could be super specialized. So people have different ways of interpreting the principles of Buddhism. For you, personally, what could be the things that you consider as a misconception of Buddhism? You know, I think the main one is uh, it, the idea of enlightenment. Um, we have, I think, have kind of a cartoonish representation of that. If you see someone in a cartoon that's been enlightened, they're in this like pose and they're hovering above the ground. And of course, a lot of that has been informed by folklore of like monks that you know, can melt snow and they can, they can levitate and stuff, you know, that, 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 and somehow the idea of enlightenment is something to be pursued. And then once you have enlightenment, it's a thing and you're some kind of Christ-like deity now that, that drifts off into the sunset. Um, I think it's counterproductive to uh, the essence of, of Buddhism, which really speaks about like, Hey, if you're pursuing enlightenment, this isn't the place for you. And then it whispers behind, it's like, yeah, it is though. <laughs> So maybe a, a more accurate way to understand enlightenment is, again, enlightenment is uh, uh, a mental state, you know? You can be in a state of enlightenment. There's maps within, within Buddhism that will show you as you're approaching those states, what kind of things will kind of be arising in your mind and in your body. So if you wanna pursue that, that's great. But like, once you climb to the mountaintop, you still gotta come down, you know what I mean? Yeah. Chop wood, carry water. So I, I think that, that <laughs> the idea of enlightenment is, and there's a kind of a purity associated with it. Um, not only is it inaccurate, but it can be kind of dangerous um, because people that are really exploring that will find someone who shows characteristics of what enlightenment means. And traditionally speaking, at least in this country, those people are the ones that are gonna try and take your wife. Those are the ones that are gonna try and get you to live on some compound, you know what I mean? Yes. So within spiritual practice there there is you need teachers it's important but like you should be real careful you know of people kind of creating some utopian design for you for someone telling you that if this then everything's okay the the, the point of this practice is the acknowledgement that like this human condition is something that you've got, but there's sensitivity to it in a way that maybe it's a little bit more enjoyable, but maybe you can be helpful for other people, you know? So maybe that would be my one gripe. <laughs> if you want to open up this can of worms, there's a couple more. <laughs> I, I really like it because um, what you said, in, in fact, about enlightenment has been a little bit something that has been disturbing me for ages. Because I guess that my first understanding about uh, about yogis was through cartoons. I, I remember that in I don't know in English if you say tantan or tintin. Uh, there was tantan was is is a Belgium cartoon uh, that is worldwide known. Um, and um, and I remember that tantan goes to Nepal. And then he sees uh, he sees yogi. So I was under the impression that these are people who really uh, are floating in the air. Yeah. <laughs> and and it took me time. In fact, even when I was a little bit older in university, I I I had a 
scientific background, so I couldn't relate to all of this, uh, all this understanding about what could mean enlightenment for, for me. And with the time, it has become more about just trying to search inside of myself uh, what I feel, detect my emotions, uh, uh, understand a little bit more of, of, of my values. It's, it's, you mentioned several times this feeling of calm where things matter less, especially the, the things that in the, in, in, in the in today's world are, are matters for others in in social media when we see the type of things that people likes people with wealth new cars new houses and, and all this information is is constantly bombarding to you you should consider this to be happy you should consider that to be happy and enlightenment is just the search for for happiness, for for being relaxed, and you make happiness not because you have reached uh, a, a goal. You make happiness because you have you you have understood that happiness it means that there there is nothing that can harm you. That that nothing can can make can be introduced inside of your uh, of your yourself of your mind in order to. In fact, if happiness means just be calm removing uh, harmful stuff, harmful thoughts. Right? A, a couple of things to piggyback on that. And I totally agree. My favorite definition of happiness is happiness is freedom from the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. Once you let that go, there it is, which speaks to the other component of spiritual practice. Uh, again, not something you believe, rather something you do. You know, speaking to like the secular spirit or a scientific materialist you know there's benefits to it the other side from a spiritual component um is the insights and meditation or uh insights and, and wisdom traditions so particularly around vipassana you know watching your thoughts as they come and go you get more practice and better off with focus and concentration and what's interesting about that is you have insights um, or what other people would call wisdom or things like that. And these are these are things about your life. These are things about the world that not, are not taught to you. It's not something you can read with an alphabet. It's, it's an awareness and understanding that envelops you. And it is a crazy feeling. You know, it's something that washes over you in insight. And that happens, you know? So <laughs> for, for uh, my, my scientific friends, it's like, I don't have an explanation of why that is. You know, there's really no way to A, B test that or to see what's going on, um, but it does happen, you know, so, and, and you see an, a, an expression and a description of this in every single religious spiritual tradition there is all through their cultural lens and through their language as they experience um, this very similar thing that once you still yourself, you find practice and focus and concentration, you receive insights and wisdom um which is extraordinary when that happens so you know I, I think when if they're talking about you know hey happiness is freedom from the pursuit of happiness that's really what they're talking about is that in the stillness when you you calm the projections of the future and you you calm the the regrets from the past and you really just kind of focus on what's here now um interesting things happen hmm. and in fact what is funny and a little bit yeah, it's in line with what you what you say. It's like I still remember that this article. I, I don't know if it was done ten years ago about this monk 
a scientist, Mathieu Ricard, the, the French monk, that they put like they they were they were putting like a device on his head in order to detect which areas of his brain uh, are uh, are enlightening lightning because the, there is connections and in fact he has been named the, the happiest person in the world is a simple monk who lives I mean far away sometimes he speaks about the meaning of happiness and by the way he has a TED talk I I still remember that TED talk. Um, so, I mean, happiness can be proven through uh, through science, but the, this guy is not looking for an ultimate goal. It's not about wealth. It is not about how much science he, because he still does a little bit of research in, in terms of uh, in terms of to, of the understanding of the brain. But it, it is only the pathway of removing all the shit that does doesn't belong, and that's powerful. <laughs> It's also really hard, <laughs> and and you know, I there there's a great monk, um, Ajahn Shah, and I love his teaching. And I was reading one of his books, and he's speaking to other monks, and it was hilarious because there's a little there's camps, right? You know, it's like, hey, if a monk's talking to me about their experience of happiness, I'm like, yeah, but bro, we got jobs here, man. I don't know what you're doing in the forest. It sounds beautiful, but like, I got bills to pay, you know. <laughs> so so Ajahn Shah was talking to these monks, and he was like. He was like, you guys are restless and you're always talking about going into town. He's like, you know what it's like in town? If you had a wife, you'd walk home and she'd be like, what did you do today? That's what, the, that's what your wife wants to know. What did you do today? You in Every day, single day, you have to describe to her what you did that day. Can you imagine the horror? <laughs> it's just, it was like the funniest thing ever. But it also like evoked in me, man, screw you, Ajit Shaw. What are you doing out there? Just like sitting down and hanging out in the forest and admiring the <laughs> beauty of nature. You know what I mean? Like we're, we're in here, we're in the mix struggling. So <laughs> I'm always like really keen on householders, that people are taking these practices and and these uh, this desire into the real world, you know, because we can't live on the mountaintop all the time. I know that if I had an enlightenment experience, I, I it would be fleeting because I got a social security number. You know what I'm saying? I got to pay these taxes because they're coming for me. So <laughs> as much as I love the monastic tradition from a romantic perspective, really, I'm looking for practical things that are going to help normal people, you know. Indeed. Oh, Brian, so we are almost at the end, but I just wanted to understand. So how are you changing the world with your two companies, Kitcaster and Wildcast? What are, what are you doing? Is there a purpose? Do you really want to change the world with these companies? Tell me more uh, about them. Yeah, you know, I think my best opportunity to change the world is to love my children and steer them in the right direction. You know, uh, one of, yeah. <laughs> the one thing you do. If you want to be a real Buddhist, the one thing you do have to believe in is reincarnation because there's no scientific evidence to that. But it's encouraging because then it kind of releases you from the stress of having one life. It's like, yeah, if I take this one life and change the rudder direction just a 10 percent in 100 lives, you know, my progeny are going to do great. <laughs> so I like that idea. But if I can, um, you know, there's a principle in Buddhism called right livelihood. And the fact that I work in podcasting, um, to me, really feels like right livelihood because, you know, whereas you, you're creative and you're out here creating opportunities um, and, and creating new thought, we actually facilitate that opportunity, which feels like a really great um, place for us. We're, we're gatekeepers in a sense of 
you know, we're making connections. We're saying like, hey, Ivan, here's this person. You guys need to have a conversation. And then you bring that out, you know, and that kind of like platonic thing of like idea, idea, synthesis, something new is born. Um, and we do that thousands of times, you know? So it, it just feels absolutely fantastic of just the interconnectivity of what we do. Um, the kind of butterfly effect that it puts out into the world, the results we hear from clients anywhere from like raising millions of dollars to, hey, I met a new friend. Hey, I'm going to a conference. I'm speaking at a conference. There's all these unbelievable, amazing outcomes that come from the work we do, which is just facilitating conversations. You know, so if we have a our message or our mission rather is just celebrate good conversation because at the end of the day, you know, what I really want to do is get back to that keg party where you're standing around talking philosophy. Um, so if we can create that over zoom, let's do it. And instead of beer, it's just coffee. Okay. Hey, even better. <laughs> That's right. I, I think that there is a, a real need to, to create these meaningful connections. It's not like offering the man. I have found someone and then there, there is no great match. I like it that by luck, you and me, we have met because I, I feel that a little bit of understanding of, and that's the, that's the thing that should happen in any podcast that you you meet people that you really want to know more of, mm. and and that if I you, agree, that, that's good. Without without sounding too hyperbolic, to your point of changing the world with what we do, um, I have the tendency to back off of it, but actually, I kind of want to double down. Uh, the fact is, is that our culture, our world has unsurmountable problems, whether it's climate change or it's potential war or it's the polarization of different uh, viewpoints. Um, it seems like we're culminating into like some kind of horrible future. Um, I don't believe that's true, but I know that the only way, the only tool we have to fix that is by connecting to each other and talking it out. That's it. There, there's no magic spell. There's no technological app. There's nothing. All we can do, the only thing we can do is come together and talk. So for us to be able to, to facilitate a small part of that, um, I believe it's kind of fractal and, and holographic in that nature that within that small thing contains the whole thing. So I, I feel really good about being able to bring people together because in essence, I, I believe this is the only way that it'll save the planet. Right. Uh, Ryan, if people wants to reach out to you, how can they find find you? I, I know about LinkedIn. So yep. that's one. Ryan Estes, you Google it I, and by, you, you search for it. I will put the details be, uh, below this podcast. Uh, where else can, can we find or, or get to know a little bit more about your businesses? You bet. You know, it's you can check out kickcaster.com. Um, and then go Wildcast, which is a, a new venture we're working on now. You can definitely hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm totally excited to talk to anybody about any of this stuff for sure. I have receded a bit from social media, but uh, very active in podcasting. So would love to talk to anybody that would like to, to reach out. Ryan, if you were in front of me physically, I will give you a hug. And today I'm going to give you a mental hug. Uh, it was lovely to meet you. I really, really liked, enjoyed this conversation. I hope that the rest of my audience has is going to enjoy it. Thank you very much, Ryan, for your time uh, and have a great, great day.
You too, Ivan. And I really appreciate what you do. We couldn't do what we do without it. So thank you so much. Thank you, Ryan.